verses 1 through 12, and 25 through 26. This is on page 4 of your bulletins. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it, as, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by mer the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? God, we pray you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you as you are, 
as the great Savior of the world. We pray that we might see your Son, who is uh, resurrected and ascended and seated with you in heaven. We pray that we might meet you. And we thank you in advance for your faithfulness. In Christ's name, amen. For the past three chapters in the book of Romans, as we're uh, in the thick of it, we've really been occupied with the subject of one question. Is God faithful? Is God faithful to his promises? That's a question all of us ask. It's a question maybe you ask in the midst of suffering. It's a question you ask in the midst of relationship turmoil. Now, in the first century, they were asking it because an unthinkable circumstance had arisen, one that no one could have projected, forecasted, even imagined. That was, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of non-Jewish Gentiles streaming into the church. Now, if you know... Uh, anything about the early church, you know that the foundation, the core group, were Jewish believers. Jesus' disciples were Jewish. The original preachers and the apostles were Jewish. The first mass conversion that happened on what was called the day of Pentecost, they were Jews from all nations. And so that foundation was Jewish. However, there were many, many in Israel that had not received the gospel message. They had rejected the idea of Jesus Christ as Messiah. God's intent had always been to gather a multi-ethnic people, a multinational people. But he started with one people, Israel. They were to be God's model and messenger. And so the question that's before them in the early church is, what about the promise of God? We have all this connection to Israel, all these promises, but now it seems as if God is no longer interested in Israel. It seems that he's turned his face just to the nations. And so the question comes before Paul, and he cared about it deeply as he was an Israelite, what about the plan of God for Israel? And he takes it head-on in this chapter, chapter 11. And I want us to look at it. We'll look at it through two lens. The wisdom of the plan of God and the obligation of the plan of God, okay? So we'll start with the wisdom. Paul starts really emphatically and says, God has not rejected Israel because Israel's unbelief is not total. And I am living proof of that. Paul would say. You remember the story of Paul. Paul was one who persecuted the Christian church and who had rejected this idea that Christ was the Messiah. He was opposed to the Christian message. And yet he says, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a walking, talking demonstration that God has not reneged on his promises to Israel. Rather, if we want to know why there are those in Israel, some who believe and others that do not believe, 
The reason stands in what we've been reading for the last couple chapters, God's sovereign mercy and election. You notice the qualification he gives here. God did not reject people whom he foreknew. And that same group in verse 7 is referred to as the elect that obtained the promise. And so what Paul is saying here is that really the same message has gone all throughout the Old Testament. And that is this, that God always said that there were some in Israel that had circumcised hearts, hearts that were alive to him, open to him, trusting in him, and there were those that had hearts that trusted in religion. In the same way, we could say it of the church today. There are those in the church that have a heart in true living relationship with Christ and those that trust in the fact that they have the right theology or maybe they were baptized or maybe they were raised in a Christian home. And the ones that have that true heart love are the ones that God has called himself and elected. To the others, as he quotes Isaiah and David, there was a spirit of stupor and darkened eyes. But you might ask, doesn't it also say, though, that God hardened Israel? And we talked about this two weeks ago, and I feel like we need to come back to it. Just for a second. What does it mean that God would harden someone? When we talked about it a few weeks ago, we mentioned Pharaoh. You know, the one that had his dealings with Moses. When you know, Moses said, let my people go. In the case of Pharaoh, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh. But if you read further, you'll see in Exodus 8.32, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And see, there's a dynamic going on here. When people continually push off God and straight arm God and reject God, God may, in his judgment, allow them to go their way of sin. He no longer holds back their sin. He lets them go their way, so to speak. And so this quote... I think stands, and I mentioned, I think it's worth repeating, the reason anyone is saved is God's election. However, the reason people are not saved isn't because of non-election. It's because of their sin. That's what's represented here before us. And this strikes at a popular, but I would say unbiblical idea, and it's been more prominent in the last couple hundred years. And it was, uh, it was first spur, you know, promulgated by, introduced by what was called dispensationalist theology. And that is this idea that God has two ways of salvation, one for the Jew and one for the Gentile. But it's clear here in the passage that's not the case. There is one way of salvation, trusting in the Messiah who is Christ. This is what Paul is saying here. But what about in verse 26? We might imagine another objection where Paul says all Israel will be saved. It sounds like universalism, doesn't it? It sounds like God is going to save everybody. Well, that's an expression we find throughout the Scripture. It's a, a way that Israel's referred to, but we have to understand it. It's be similar to imagine you say to someone, listen, everybody's coming to my house after church to watch the football game. I doubt that you would say to your friend, Everybody? You mean everybody on the planet? We're going to need some more chips, you know? Of course, you look at it within the context and the horizon of which it's said. Paul is not talking about everybody without exception, but everybody without distinction. 
And then he supplies a well-known example with the prophet Elijah. Now, this is during the day when the king and queen of Israel were wicked and ungodly, Ahab and Jezebel, and they hunted and killed prophets, and Elijah was one of those prophets, and he's really down because he's seen his brothers getting massacred, and he says, I'm all alone, and God says, that's not the case. There's a remnant of 7,000 that have not bowed their knees to the idols. And in that, what he's saying is, I have preserved the lives and the faith of those that I've called. And to this very great, this number, there'll be a great number added to that throughout history from the people of Israel. And so what we have here is the teaching that a great mass of people from Israel, perhaps the majority, we don't know, will be found at the throne of God in the last day in heaven, worshiping Him. Now, that's the statement he makes. Where's the wisdom in all of this? The mystery, and by the way, mystery here doesn't mean something that confuses you or puzzles you. Mystery is something that was hidden but then is revealed. The mystery is this, that God will do something in the life of Israel despite them. So we're told here, and as I mentioned, many in Israel had rejected the idea of Christ as Messiah. But you know something? God doesn't quit easy. And He doesn't remain idle. As Israel has said no to that, He then turns His attention to the Gentiles and He opens the floodgates of His mercy. We see this in verse 11. Through Israel, the riches of salvation then come into the Gentiles. It's hard for us to appreciate how radical this was. It would maybe be akin to saying that the church has turned and hardened itself to Jesus Christ, so he has then turned to the Muslim world to unleash his mercy. This is how it would have appeared to Israel, the fact that God has turned to the Gentiles and he has poured his grace upon them. But it shouldn't surprise us if you know God's name. God is Redeemer. God is Savior. This is His nature. This is what He does. He doesn't stop saving. So even as His own people said no to His mercy, He continues to accomplish His plan. You know, tonight the uh, Academy Awards are on, and I think one of the films nominated as Hacksaw Ridge, and Meg and I watched that last night, and uh, it, it tells the true story of a soldier who saves, uh, single-handedly saves 75 of his fellow soldiers over a course of 12 hours without carrying a weapon, uh, and he does it. He's a medic, and it's an amazing thing. It's because of his faith. But th this guy, during one of the bloodiest battles in World War II, does not stop saving his bloodied and dying soldiers. He just will not stop. He keeps saying, one more, one more. If we could see that spirit in a fallible human being, how much more would we expect it of God? And we see it in the Gospel. So much so that this is the only faith that teaches this, right? That he would come to earth. He would lay aside his glory and become like you and I, and he wouldn't just come down for a short photo op. He would live here for past 30 years. 
And he would labor and he would walk in our shoes and he would deal with our suffering and he would deal with the things that are in this world. And then when he was revealed, he would be rejected and he would even be betrayed by his closest friends and he would go through unimaginable torture and then he would deal with the judgment and pains of hell. Why? Because he must save. He must save. It's his nature to save. He wasn't going to stop. And so he continues his work in the way he does it. How does he then do this work after he's worked in the lives of the Gentiles? We're then told that God, in a sense, uses, uh, you know, the, the idea of judo is sometimes used where this, this thought that, you know, judo uses your forward motion against you. And so that God uses Israel's forward motion, their rejection of him, actually for them. And that is, he exploits their envy. Paul says this twice. This is such an interesting thing. As apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and save some of them. This is a holy holy jealousy. Maybe we can put it this way. You know, imagine there's a bunch of high school students and they're at a dance. And you have the typical group that are just kind of sitting there like that. This is stupid. This isn't any fun. You know, they won't dance. And then you have the group that's in the middle having a good time. Well, eventually, if you on the wall begin to see what a great time, and they go, forget this, I'm jumping in the middle. Well, Israel had been sitting there like this. They had had their disdain for the Gentiles. They had their way where they wanted to. Uh, live life the way they had. They had sought to be justified by the law. We've been studying that. They had sought, that is not all of them, but those that had did this, they had hoped that they would be, their sense of joy and salvation would come from their own efforts behind obeying God's law. Paul mentions this in verse 6 when he talks about the basis of works and the basis of grace. And I've said before, it may not be you're a religious person here, but you're essentially doing the same thing as a secular person. You know, you're, you're trying to get your sense of identity and worth and justification from what you do, your achievements and accomplishments. But if you haven't found out yet, that sort of way isn't very much fun. Perfectionism isn't that fun. Living by your own achievements isn't that joyful. You end up being a self-righteous, envious, cranky person. But then you look into a group of people that seem to get their security from somewhere else by the grace of God. They seem to have this confidence from knowing that they're beloved children, sons and daughters of God. They seem to have this freedom even with their sin to own up to it because they know they're completely accepted and forgiven no matter how much they screw up. And so you get this holy envy, this holy jealousy, and you go, I want some of that. I want to learn to live by grace. I want to learn that joy. I want to know that excitement. I don't want what I have right now, which is this devotion to this system to save myself. And this is what God does in the lives of the Jews. They then look and see what's going on. And they turn to God. He uses this analogy. We didn't have time to read it, but of an olive tree and a wild olive branch. Israel, one of its names in Scripture, one of the metaphors would be an olive tree. And God says, it's like this, God has taken this this wild olive branch, the Gentiles, and he's grafted it into the tree. Now, wild olive branches notoriously were unfruitful by themselves. 
You know, they, they, those trees, they, they wouldn't bloom. But once they're grafted into the tree, they begin to become fruitful. But more so, as they nourish on the tree, they kick the systems of the tree into gear so the tree becomes more uh, fruitful. And so you see this beautiful mutual thing going on. As the Gentiles come into the church, the Jews then begin to be revived because they see this gospel that they want. They finally begin to see, oh, the law was always pointing to Christ. They come to see the law was never meant to save that way. God had always been telling us, even back in Moses, they find Christ. They become spiritually alive and turns the Gentiles wake up and go, wow, look at this incredible story that's ours. We're part of this history of salvation. God has always been at work, and this is ours. It's this beautiful plan of salvation. The Gentiles hear because Israel goes like that, but then Israel hears because they see what's happening with the Gentiles. Just when, you know, God saves the Gentiles when you would have thought only Jews could be saved. And then later in the future, he promises to pour out a blessing on Israel, whereby many, many, many more will be saved. And so it leaves us with two points, two summary points of this. God does this, one, so everybody will know that salvation is only by mercy, only by his sovereign mercy. And second of all, that God does not give up on his people. God does not give up on his promises. The gifts of God are irrevocable. Neither should we, which gives us to the last point, our obligation. And we see this in two ways, our attitude and our outreach. In verse 18 and 25, Paul seems to be saying here that the Gentiles, he says to the Gentiles, do not be arrogant toward the branches Later in verse 25, do not be wise in your own sight. It appears what's happening here is as the Gentiles are getting the gospel and they're understanding what's going on with the grace of God and the scriptures are becoming alive, there are some that are beginning to judge Jewish unbelief and go, I don't get it. You know, it would be sort of like you got, a, you got a D student and an A student in a science class or a math class, and there's this one formula, this one thing that the A student just can't get, but the D student gets it. And so the D student begins to go, I can't believe this. This A student can't get this? You know, it makes me think of uh, Conan, you know, the comedian. He went to Harvard. And it, it, when he did his class speech at Harvard, he said, when you go to Harvard, you're doomed to something. Anytime you can't do something, people say, oh, and you went to Harvard. You know? He's like, oh, you, 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 can't, you can't fix the, you know, put oil in the, you went to Harvard? You know, so it's this idea of looking down on someone. So Paul is saying, this is what's happened. And I would say it manifests itself even today. It manifests itself when Christians see themselves as the new chosen people, in a sense, where they view themselves, maybe America as Israel. You know, it's this kind of weird merge of... um, Christian exclusivism in in the sense, I I don't know a better way to say it. But throughout history, it's had even worse manifestations. And that is the terrible abuses and persecution the Jewish people have undergone at the hands of Christians. 
whether it be those during the Holocaust that justify their murder by the Bible and the Christian faith, whether it be writers throughout history from Christostom to Martin Luther that have written terrible things about Jewish people, or whether it be any boy, any young Jewish girl or young Jewish boy that has been told, you killed Jesus. All these manifestations ought to make the people of God, the Christian church, weep and repent. It's, it's the spirit of what Paul is talking about here. Christians only, the only attitude Christians always ought to have before anybody, especially the olive tree in which they've been grafted, is humility, respect, and love. So Paul warns them, saying, hey, you know, the same thing could happen to you. And in some ways, you know, this has played out in the church. Church has been going for some time, thousands of years. And have we ever seen manifestation where the church sort of said, hey, uh, we've got it. And so Paul warns us, and he says, rather, you need to persevere in the kindness of God. I love that phrase. Because that's what it's about. You know, I, I, I wanted to say this a couple weeks ago, because when we get into subjects like election and God's choice, you know, people begin to say things like, they get paralyzed with fear or navel-gazing and say, well, what if I'm not elect? You know, what if, I'm somebody, what, what if God didn't choose me? You and I are not called to put our faith in that question. We're called to put our faith in Christ, the Redeemer. That's where our attention is to be. That's where our trust is. And so when we persevere in the kindness of God, what does it mean? God will preserve his saints just like he preserved his promise to Israel all the way to the end. And how do we do it? Not out of fear, by leaning in hard to the kindness and grace of God. That's how you persevere, going deeper into his grace. As Book of Romans said earlier, God's kindness leads to repentance. So it's not only attitude, it's outreach. Now, throughout history, and especially in our day, um, speaking of Christ, evangelizing to Jewish folk is viewed as anti-Semitic. Uh, Paul would flatly disagree with that as an Israelite and a Jew. He would say, no, we actually, uh, the Gentiles need to be sharing the good news of grace with everybody, Israel included. Christians should pray and desire for Jewish people to come to know the Messiah that was promised to them. And yet they should do it with compassion and wisdom. Maybe a good starting question would be, if you have a Jewish friend, to say, you know, tell me what your experience has been like with Christians. That gives them a chance to tell their story to you. There's got to be a lot of trust. Uh, someone that really, I think, does this wonderfully is Randy Newman, who we had in the fall. Randy is Jewish himself, comes from a Jewish family, became a Christian, and he writes quite a bit about what it's like to thoughtfully have conversations. Because there's a lot of water under the bridge, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of history, and it has to be done with humility and love. But it must be done. I came across a pew... Uh, stat this week, you know, Pew polls, researches, survey. And it really was staggering. It came through a, a website, New York Religions, and I've verified it on a couple other websites. 
But in 2013, Pew Research did a poll among Jewish people. And they came up with, in the U.S., as many as 1.7 adult Jewish people identify as Christian. 1.7 million identifies being Christian. Could this be God fulfilling his promise? I wouldn't be surprised because he's fulfilled it all over the world. But it's a mystery. Only the wisdom of God. So as we round up these chapters 9 through 11, I, I want to say this to you. We don't need to understand everything to praise the God who does. We don't have to understand everything to praise the God who does. I think that's a helpful phrase. At least one that's helped me. But what we can do is praise. Paul ends this section, this really meaty section of Scripture, breaking out with doxology. I mean, in some ways, it's incredible. He praises God for his ignorance. He praises God for what he doesn't know. This is beyond me. This is God. Should we not expect that God does stuff that we can't explain and don't know? Yes. I've said this before, but if, you know, God, if your God knows everything that you know, he's just a reflection of you. He's, not, he's nothing special. And so I think it's only fitting to end where Paul does. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your great work of salvation. For my uh, Jewish brothers and sisters in the room today, I thank you for your long-standing promise and faithfulness um, as a Gentile.